Hey everybody, thank you for tuning in. Today is a bonus episode. What that means is that this episode has little or nothing to do with my mission and vision. Instead, I'm talking with cool and interesting people about cool and interesting things. Sometimes these discussions will be with people who I agree with. Sometimes with people I disagree with. But either way, we are exploring topics which I feel are either interesting, important, or both. I feel strongly that it's important to be able to have a respectful and honest conversation about any topic, especially the ones I disagree with. It's only by being curious about what what makes other people tick that we can understand why they believe what they do and why they act how they do. I believe that the more we understand each other, the more united the world will be. And that's a good thing. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy the conversation. With another special edition of Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. And it is my distinct pleasure to finally get uh, Danielle Smith on the show. Danielle, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Been chasing you for a year, but we got you. Well, and I don't want people to think I was avoiding you. I just said, (laughs) I know that you have an interest in EMS, as do I. And I knew we were going to be making some major changes on that front. So I wanted to to talk to you when I could actually flesh out a little bit more about what we're doing there. So I'm I'm glad to be able to talk to you today. Well, it's all good. It all works out because, oh my gosh, there's so much for us to cover. Um, I'm actually going to start with education before we jump into healthcare because my wife is a school principal and she took early retirement four years early because of the state of the education system. So if I want if I want a happy wife, I better start there. Um, most of the teachers that she talks to uh, in her sphere are all going to be voting orange. So mm-hmm. how can we re- reach across the aisle? Because here's where, where they're at. Um, first is the curriculum. That's a big, big issue. Uh, the Your predecessor scrapped a curriculum that was considered to be a masterpiece by them. 70,000 stakeholders and flushed it down the toilet. So that's a big bone of contention. Uh, The second is losing control of their pensions. They're not too happy about that. Uh, Because there's no consultation. It's just, yoink, we're taking it. Too bad, so sad. Uh, Every year they're doing more with less. And they're not big fans of Adriana LaGrange across the board. Because they are just simply feeling unheard. So let's start there. How do you reach across the aisle and uh, get those teachers to vote UCP? Well, you've got a lot of issues you put on the table. First, let, let me talk about the curriculum and why it came about. Because what we hear from parents is they were very frustrated. Number one, that their kids were not at grade level for reading and writing. Number two, that the new math, the way it was being taught, they couldn't help them with math homework and their kids were falling further behind. They're also concerned about some of the ideology in uh, being taught in, in so- the social studies curriculum. And so uh, we, we ended up parking that last one because we have to do more consultation on it. But I, I, I'm, I'm, con- I'm absolutely committed to the changes that we needed to make in K-3 to math and literacy. We're back to phonetics in teaching kids, which is really important because some kids can't learn how to read unless they sound it out. And we're back to teaching math the way we used to so that kids can get the uh, the foundations. So I, I think those were good decisions. In fact, um, I, I did discover that 55 of our school boards decided to go ahead and start implementing the grade four to six curriculum as well uh, for math and and, and uh, language arts. And that's really positive. I do think we have a lot more work to do on uh, on social studies and some of the other areas. I think perhaps we were a little bit too aggressive in trying to roll so many things out at once. But I think the education minister responded to that. Going into this next um, period here, next year or so, my, my gravest concern is the mental health of our kids 
based on some of the restrictions they had to to uh, endure and the cancellation of activities, loss of, of friendships over the last two and a half years. That That's really hard for young ones, as well as the potential learning loss. And we want to be able to quantify that and address it now so that it doesn't end up creating problems further down the line. So that would be, I would say, my, my great priority is making sure that we address those foundational issues, which is why I've also said that we need to have more supports in the classroom for mental health and more supports in the classroom for education assistance. If we can have that extra hand on deck in classrooms so that small groups can be taken aside um, so that you can you can make sure that you're able to do the one-on-one, I, th- I think that's going to make a, a world of difference. And so those are the things that we're working on. may not be 100% satisfactory to all teachers, but but I'm, I'm, I understand the complexity of classrooms now is such that the larger they get with more complex needs, you, you really do need to have more resources in the classroom to be able to manage it. So that's what we're working on. With the st- uh, still the piece about the teachers not feeling heard, I think that's the key mm. piece from what yeah. I've been hearing. Um, again, that original curriculum was 70,000 stakeholders. It was swapped for um, just 17 educators were consulted, and they all had to sign gag orders for whatever yeah. reason. They were muff- muzzled. Um, how can you help the teachers feel like they are actually being consulted and they're part of the process? Well, I would say, so that all happened before I became uh, premier, but I, I did, I would just acknowledge that they did end up pausing the implementation of the rest. So I think, I think teachers' voices were heard. Um, reaching out to the ATA was one of the first things that I did when I launched my leadership bid. I wanted to meet with the leadership and I also went to their event of their senior leadership in, in, uh, BAM. I think it was Banff at the Banff Center, so that we could hear directly from them. So I, I take the view my my doors open. And there was also actually an ATA event in my home riding of, uh, of Brooks Medicine Hat that I also attended. So my view is that you begin the relationship by showing up, listening, having the conversation, and as we identify issues, we can solve them together. So it may be that the, the previous leadership had a different view on that, but I, 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 I believe that you only solve problems by engaging and talking to people. And so I, I hope people see and approach it in that spirit. There's, we're not going to agree on everything, but at least we can understand where everybody is coming from so that if we have to have a, a, an adjustment, of course, then we can do that. And I, I firmly believe that we have adjusted course in response to that feedback, and I hope teachers see it that way. Well, it seems like there's going to have to be a lot of bridges built for that. Um, your predecessor certainly burnt those bridges with the educators for sure. They yeah. uh, were not happy with Mr. Kenny. Let's, you uh, know, can I also say, oh, though, I mean, yeah. on, on the, the, the people need, I think our, our teachers need to understand the frustration that parents have. Because um, we have a UN convention that says that parents have the right to choose the education they want for their kids. And I, I think that parents get frustrated when they hear stories in the news or they see it in their own home when kids are, are coming home and they're, they're being taught things about our energy industry, as an example, that are, mm-hmm. that are negative and not, and not with balance. And that's the issue that we are trying to address is how do we get balance in dealing with some of these contentious issues. We're right in the middle of having a conversation about just transition. And the way it's being framed by one side is phasing out oil and natural gas workers entirely and getting them to drive trucks for solar panel companies or become janitors. That is not the future that I want our kids thinking is available to them in the oil and natural gas sector. I want them thinking that they can have exciting jobs in doing reclamation of our well sites and exciting jobs in doing carbon tech and carbon capture and turning CO2 into useful products. And that there's a fabulous new industry to be had in hydrogen and that LNG is clean and exporting it to the world allows for us to help our impoverished fellow citizens move away from wood and dung 
and coal as the the principal way in which they're in which they're cooking their food. I mean, these are the kinds of things that I, I think people are frustrated by. Is that we need to get better balance on some of these uh, uh, contentious issues, and so we're going to work with the teachers on that. But but they need to understand where the frustration comes from from parents. And I I have to be honest that it's our job as politicians to make sure that that parents are are feeling like their kids are getting the very best education possible. So that's the conversation that I want to have with them going forward. All right, fair enough. Uh, let's switch to healthcare. Uh, what is the state of the union of our healthcare right now, and what are the uh, fixes that need to be put in place? I felt that we needed new leadership in health. I think that we moved to a single central Alberta Health Super Board years ago, and the politicians just said, "Okay, hands off. We've got the experts in place. Go solve it." And then we, it was stress tested during COVID, and I'm, I'm sorry, it failed the stress test. We were told, just give us more time, give us more money, we'll increase surge capacity. They didn't do it, even in this most recent respiratory virus season, which is a triple whammy now of RSV as well as influenza and COVID. And they weren't prepared, to again, to manage the surge. So I, I felt like we needed to have a far more hands-on approach with somebody who's familiar with the system, who has not only medical experience, but also business experience, who can work day in, day out to get better decision-making. And so that's why I dismissed the board, thanked them for their service, but brought in an official administrator. We have an interim CEO right now who is, uh, uh, and we're we're doing a a job search for a permanent CEO, but he's working with the existing team to identify problems, to make changes where he needs to. And so that we can, so that we can identify some, some of the big issues that need to be solved. And the, and the issues are not going to surprise you. You experience them just as much as I do. It's if you know a loved one who has to go to the, to the hospital, you want an ambulance to be able to show up in a reasonable period of time. Once they arrive at hospital, you want them to be dropped off in a reasonable period of time. Once they've been triaged, you want them to either be treated and released or admitted into a hospital bed in a reasonable period of time. If you've got somebody who's been waiting for a knee replacement and you're hearing, as I have heard with friends, my constituency assistant told me she's been on the list for five years. That is not medically reasonable. These are the kind of, of issues that I know we need to solve. They, when, I, when I arrived on the scene, I was reading stories about people waiting on cold hospital floors for 29 hours before getting admitted. I was reading about um, uh, the ambulance vehicles sitting at a, a hospital, not only for one shift, but they're changing the shift out while, while a patient was still in the back of a vehicle. And we had more surgical uh, backlog than we had prior to COVID. And all of those things were unacceptable to me. So those are the three things that we have asked Dr. John to work tirelessly on reducing. And now we've just added one more because everywhere I go, I keep hearing that at least 30% of the room, I, I often ask this, do you have a family doctor? At least 30% of the room, sometimes yeah, more, I don't. Up your hand and say, no, there you are. And yeah. that, how can we have that? We have 11,000 doctors in the province. How come, how come 30% of us or more don't have a family doctor? Because you see what happens is that if you don't have a medical practitioner, or even if your doctor's office is only open Monday through Thursday, 9 a.m. to 2.30 p.m., and then you don't, as in my community, don't have a walk-in clinic and something happens, where are you going to go? You go to the, the emergency. So the emergency has become the entry point for every single problem that every single individual has. No wonder they're overwhelmed. So our, our, our philosophical approach is this. Let's shore up primary care so that people have access to a point of care. Let's make sure that we're using 811 appropriately so that people can be treated in place. Let's make sure that our drivers, uh, or sorry, our, our paramedics, are when they arrive at a scene that they are highly trained professionals 
Let them be able to treat on site if with the doctor's oversight or sign off if they need to, but they have the ability to treat on site so that we can avoid some of those additional transfers. And let's make sure that we're using nurse practitioners and pharmacists and other health professionals to their full scope of practice. Uh, I've also talked about health spending accounts. It's going to take a little bit more time for us to put that into place, but let's use all of those additional preventative health practitioners, chiropractics and acupuncturists and massage therapists and psychologists, let's make sure we're using the full scope of practice so that we can put less pressure on the emergency rooms. If we do a little bit more at the front end, we may be able to avoid some of the some of the pressure on our hospitals. So that's the holistic work that's underway. What does the timeline look like to get those health spending accounts in place? Well, I've, I've asked Nate Glubish, who's our technology and innovation minister to take a look at it. And he's just come back to me and said that um, it's it's going to take longer um, than than he expected. So probably I was hoping we'd be able to roll it out before the, the next election, but it will probably have to be at some point over the, the next year. I want to give him the time to do it right. And we may have to roll it out with a, with a fewer number of professions to start just to establish the concept, get people enrolled, and then we can onboard additional professionals as we go along. I, I'm, we're going to work on the staging plan so that we can, we can have it established as, as quickly as possible because I think it's going to be essential in helping people take charge of their, of their own health care. One, the, one of the stories that I heard when I was on the campaign trail, for instance, that really brought it home for me was in Milk River. There was a a podiatrist who was there. And one of the things he said is there's just some simple things that you can do on maintaining foot care for those who have diabetes so that if they have a cut or sore, it's addressed and treated right away because one of the biggest costs on our healthcare system is when those sores get infected and you have to have amputation or an individual has sepsis. He says it costs $400 million per year in um, in additional costs on healthcare that can be avoided with some of that prevention. And getting regular foot care, it's, you know, $20 a visit. If we can help our seniors in supporting them in doing that, I think that those are the kind of, those are the kind of things that I'm looking for. It's better for everyone, better for the patient, better for the health system. It's better care from the doctor's perspective. So why wouldn't we want to try to find a way to make those things happen? My ex-wife is an acupuncturist. So mm-hmm. any kind, anything that we can divert to those other types of therapies, acupuncture, chiropractor, whatever, takes a lot of strain off of our hospitals because uh, there, there shouldn't be a one-stop shop, our hospitals. We've got all kinds of other forms of care yep. that uh, should be explored. And I might, let me just add to that because I didn't try acupuncture until recently. I, okay. I had a, a bit of a neck injury and I, ha- I thought, how is this going to work? And it works. <laughs> so I'm a, I'm a huge enthusiast. My dog now gets acupuncture for his back. So, <laughs> and there's some things that only those alternative practitioners can do. So I oh, it's true. It's true. Yeah. Uh, there's not a pill for everything. That is not, uh, you can't use pills as solutions for everything. Uh, we have a new phenomenon that's been around the last year, this sudden adult death uh, silliness that's, go- that's going on. Um, some of the international numbers on this, in the UK, every single week, there is an excess 2,000 uh, deaths a week. Um, U.S. military numbers that I have been watching, uh, they have a giant spike because they watch those numbers really carefully. So cancer is up by 350%. Mm-hmm. Neurological injuries up by 1,000%. Mm-hmm. Uh, this seems to be a global thing. Uh, is this as big of a problem in Alberta? And is Alberta Health looking into what the heck is going on? What's causing this? I've just, I've just started the conversation with Alberta Health about how we can look at the data to see if the numbers that are and the, and the anecdotal stories being reported internationally, if, if they're appearing in our data as well. 
A couple of things I would I would comment on is we know we've got a very grave mental health and addiction crisis. And I, I suspect that uh, one of the issues is that we have probably opioid poisoning that's occurring. And as I, I've been told, because my, my chief of staff is one of the foremost experts in North America on mental health and addiction. And one of the things he says is that with fentanyl, it leaves the body very quickly. And so it could be that that is one of the reasons why we're um, having a delay in identifying the causes of death. There could be opioid poisoning, overdoses, and suicides. So, um, and the medical examiner's office is uh, backlogged in, in being able to do that assessment because those just take a little bit more time. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm alive to the issue that there is, a ver- uh, there is a data problem here that we need to understand what some of those unknown causes are. But I, I'm hoping that it is just a, a data delay. The other thing I've heard from... Um, from doctors who work in emergency is that people were in their homes for the last two and a half years. They were afraid to leave and many of them did not get routine medical checkups. And so people are presenting at emergency rooms with conditions that haven't been uh, managed over the last two and a half years. So they're far more acute, whether it's a cancer that didn't get diagnosed early in the last two and a half years. Now they're arriving in at stage four or whether it's COPD and now they've got um, a more acute sy- symptoms, whether it's heart um, issues, and now they're at a point where it, it's it's quite critical. So I, I think that that's part of it. Is and we and we sadly, uh, we had some doctors who were uh, who were making us aware early on, like a like Dr. Ari Jaffe at the Stollery said, we have to be mindful that we when we have these kinds of disruptions that we are going to see people delay treatment and it's going to result in uh, in more difficulties later. That's what I, th- I suspect that's part of what's going on. But I want to see how, um, I want to see how acute the condition is in Alberta. Because remember, we, we did re- remove the restrictions earlier than everyone else. We're sort of the last ones to put them in and the first ones to take them off. And we did end up clearing. We're now back to a surgical backlog that is the same as it was pre-COVID. I think we've got uh, just under 68,000 surgeries that are on the surgical backlog. Not great, but it means that we ha- don't have those surgeries piling up um, uh, like, they, like they did when we, when we had the closures. I think, I think they've done a, a really good job of especially using our charter surgical centers, which now do, I think, 20% of our surgeries in clearing that backlog. So, so those are the things that I, that I think we might have a different experience here in Alberta. I want to verify that looking at the data. But I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to panic anybody about it. We, we because I, I think we need to look at the facts bef- before we, we draw any conclusions. That's what I'm trying to do. Well, none of that explains the young people that are dying of strokes and heart attacks. Young, fit, healthy people, and yeah, uh, I, I, we, we, you know, we all know somebody that that's happened to. Yeah, I take your point. You know, I I had a young person. Uh, my my brother's best friend died at age 21 of an aneurysm, but that was 30 years ago, and I mm-hmm. and that's what I, I want to be able to check is. Are, um, are we seeing uh, year to year uh, any unusual circumstances or can the circumstances be, tr- be, uh, be uh, explained by the fact that some of these cases might have been identified if you had a problem, might have been identified at some point over the last two and a half years, didn't get identified, and now um, they've, they've become more acute. I, I, I want to keep an open mind about this, and so, but I, I, ta- I've started the conversation with health about how we can look at our own data to see if it reflects some of the anecdotes that we're hearing internationally. 
All righty. Uh, let's start with a more of a personal question. Back in 1984, the National Energy Program came mm-hmm. in, and my family was wiped out, never recovered. I watched all my yeah. belongings as a kid get auctioned off in our driveway. And that happened a lot. People were destroyed and did not recover. Is that part of... The, if the Sovereignty Act was in place then, would that have been a tool to sort of mitigate that and soften the blow? You know, I think I'm, I'm inspired by Peter Lougheed because I think Peter Lougheed did some pretty tough uh, pushback on the, on the federal government. I think what, what happened uh, in subsequent years is we kind of felt, okay, we don't ever want that to happen again. So let's keep our head down. Let's work hard. Ottawa can, can uh, take a portion of it. But as long as they allow us to continue generating wealth, we'll be okay. And so I think we stopped doing the kind of advocacy that we needed to. When we started getting hit by uh, international environmentalists on what they've called their um, their just transition plan or their uh, other uh, tar sands campaign that launched in 2008. I, I think we, we, we were a little bit late in pushing back against that and it allowed for um, a momentum to, to come on that, uh, that oil and natural gas could be transitioned into other jobs. I remember interviewing, for instance, Elizabeth May, and she talked about training oil workers to install solar panels. <laughs> and I thought, well, that, that's not what a transition is going to look like. And if you look at this Blacklocks uh, reporter uh, story that came out today, they've got a briefing note where the department's actually saying, well, you know, there'll be jobs for janitors and people driving trucks for solar companies in the future. That is not what this is about. We are not going to allow for our oil and natural gas workers to be phased out. I think that there's going to be a lot of high-paying, meaningful jobs in the sectors that I that I had mentioned before, hydrogen and carbon tech and environmental reclamation. And we should be very proud of what we do here. Those are good jobs we're, we're, we're ensuring that the world has energy security. The world has affordable energy. We're doing this from an environmental perspective better than anyone else. And I'm going to make sure that I defend our oil and natural gas workers and also our agriculture workers, our manufacturing sector. Ottawa doesn't get to decide to just unilaterally start phasing the out our The propaganda campaign has been so effective to taint Alberta oil as dirty oil and when in the opposite is the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, painting EVs, electric vehicles, as greener and better and more ethical when the opposite is true. Every EV depends on slave labor. Over 75% of the world's uh, cobalt and lithium all comes from child and slave labor, Mm -hmm. um, mostly out of the Congo. That's not okay. That's not ethical. Uh, So how do we switch the messaging so that that truth comes out and we, and we look at this soberly uh, as adults and, and say, look, yeah, EV, great idea. In theory, it's a great idea. Sure, sounds good, less emissions, sounds good. But is it really less emissions? Uh, from what I've read, the electric vehicles have a larger carbon footprint when you look mm-hmm. at their entire life cycle, not a smaller carbon footprint. Um, and, and again, back to slave labor, that's the opposite mm-hmm. of ethical. Uh, so how do we change the messaging on that? And do we cave to these demands to switch everything to electric from our stoves to our cars? None of these, uh, none of these stories that we're hearing about make sense from an, a, a practical point of view. The I just want to put on on the table, for instance, one of the things um, it's been suggested to me is that when any electric vehicle is sold, we should also tell somebody how long the battery lasts and what it will cost to replace it. Because my understanding is you get about one hundred twenty thousand miles and it costs thirty thousand dollars to replace the battery. I don't think that we have 
an effective way of recycling the uh, the batteries either certainly don't for solar panels either or wind turbines and then when you look at um what is proposed as being green energy you cannot make solar panels without coal you cannot make wind turbines with steel without steel which comes from coal you cannot make cement and the transport to the uh, to the site and the fiberglass without using hydrocarbon fuels so those and you can't mine coal without diesel you can't mine coal without diesel, and you move a lot of earth when you do it. And as you said, in, as particularly in, in Congo, we're, we're not seeing the, the best practices when it comes to child labor. So, so I would say that we have to look at the full. We talk about environmental, social, and governance measures. We've got to look at the whole spectrum. And when you look at the full spectrum on all of those measures, Canada is ahead bar none, and Alberta is at the top of the pack bar none. And so it's, it's up to us because we own the resource in Alberta. The Crown owns it on behalf of our people. We have an obligation to tell that story to the world. That's that's why I made sure that when I got elected, I sent Sonia Savage, our environment minister, to COP27 so that we could get our positive message out. I sent her to COP15, which was about the, which was the biodiversity summit, so that she again could get our message out about how we're protecting uh, endangered habitat, but doing it in a way that allows our economy to continue to thrive. I just don't, frankly, think that the federal government can tell our message to the world. I think that we got a bit complacent thinking that they would, and I'm going to be there every step of the way. If they're going to be making representations internationally about what is possible or not possible, then we're going to make sure that uh, that we follow up so that, so that people understand. I mean, I, I think the, the prime minister blew it when the German chancellor was here saying there was no business case for LNG. So I wrote a letter when the Japanese prime minister was here saying there is a case for LNG export to uh, to the, the, the Pacific and Japan and South Korea in particular, and we have the ability to do it. So uh, as a result, I gather we're going to have a Team Canada mission to to Japan, and I and my envir- energy minister, Pete Guthrie, has already said, I'm going to be there, and I agree. So th- those are the things that I think we can do, is if we're there saying what our message is, it resonates. When uh, Minister Savage got back from uh, from the, uh, the climate change conference, she told me that U.S. Uh, Representative John Kerry, remember, he was a, a former uh, and he was a, uh, a former presidential candidate. He said, what are you guys doing up there in Alberta, in Canada? You guys are way ahead of us. And that, I think, is going to change minds about just how far ahead our industry is. We have nothing, we have everything to be proud of. And, and we should be celebrating that as in as many forums as we can. Oh, we're at time. I'll just uh, close with a thought that I would love to see a campaign showing how Alberta oil is far better than California oil, because I love the irony of it, because it's Isn't true. It the truth? It is true. And I must, I must just say how disappointed I am. Um, Rachel Notley has been asked this every single day. Are you going to stand up for oil and natural gas workers? And we have to remember the reason why this just transition legislation is coming in is because Jagmeet Singh, the national NDP leader, has made it a condition of his continued support for Justin Trudeau's government. So I think Rachel Notley has the ability to help change the messaging there, and I wish that she would speak up on behalf of our workers here. That's what I'm going to keep on doing, and I think that that's going to be important because we have to keep these jobs um, in in Alberta. We have to keep them going. We have to keep them generating revenue because the more revenue they generate, the more we can support all of our, our public services that we care so much about, they're not disconnected. They're integrally uh, intertwined. And that's why it's so important that we defend our industry in the, in the strongest possible terms. Premier Smith, we're at time. Thank you so much Thanks for so much. joining me today. We'll I, I wish I could have you for an hour, but uh, I'll take what I can get. <laughs> next time. We'll ne- see you again. Next time. All right. Bye-bye. Bye now.
Hello, my friends. Thank you for sharing your time with me today. I hope you found value in today's episode. If you found this episode helpful, healing, or informative, please let me know by leaving a rating on either Spotify or Apple. And please share, share like the sugar bear on all of your social media channels. Because sharing is caring.